listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Hi, Jeff. Today's guest actually doesn't really need any introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. So he is a published author. He wrote the book Hacking Marketing. He also wrote a really pivotal HBR article in 2014 called The Rise of the Chief Marketing Technologist. Got an awesome career you know, in startups, Ion Interactive, currently is at HubSpot, but you probably most know him, or at least listeners probably most know him for the MarTech landscape that he started, you know, what, a decade ago, Scott? So we're welcoming Scott Brinker from Chief MarTech and HubSpot today to talk to us or talk with us, <laughs> hopefully not at us, about sales tech and MarTech. So I apologize, Jeff. I did go off the rail on the intro. So anyway, Scott, welcome. <laughs> hey, it's great to be here with you guys. Well, thanks for joining us. So, so you know, th- this all started with, you know, this series we're doing on modern selling. And, you know, Jeff and I started talking about this, this sales hacker conference I went to like a decade ago. And we started talking about sales tech and then MarTech. And we said, well, what's the difference between these things? So we said, well, who's better to ask than you? So we wanted to talk about sales tech, MarTech. What are they and what's going on here? So what's emerging? So maybe if you want to just clue us in there, like what's your take about kind of these two buckets of technologies and what they are and how they differ from each other? Yeah. I mean, so there's the the easy answer to that, which is MarTech is technology for marketing and sales tech yeah. is technology for sales. <laughs> but I think, yeah, what makes it interesting and challenging is the scope of all the possible things we do under the you know heading of marketing over these past 10 years. It's just exploded. It's not like any of the responsibilities that marketers previously had went away. This is like all additive new responsibilities, opportunities of how we engage with customers through all these channels at pretty much every stage of their journey. What's fascinating about sales tech is... MarTech was definitely the field where we saw like this this just explosion of SaaS offerings over the past decade. Just, I mean, it happened at an incredible rate. Like you mentioned that landscape. The first one I did in 2011 had around 150 products on it. The one we published in 2020 had like 8,000. And to be honest, that hadn't been a dynamic we'd seen in, you know, software before, not at that scale. And there was a lot of like suspicion of like, okay, is this just an anomaly? Is this something really weird and wacky about marketing? And it turns out the answer to that is no, that the dynamics behind that from our tech are actually now the dynamics we're seeing in a whole bunch of other categories and professions as well too. Sales tech being one of them, this past couple of years, just been an absolute like explosion of all these different SaaS-based sales tech uh, tools. And I think we're starting to just come around to the realization that, okay, this isn't even necessarily specific to marketing or specific to sales, because I'm seeing the same thing happening in finance and fintech and, you know, certainly in the like developer IT world. I mean, the explosion of all the tools there. It's just, this is apparently life in the cloud. Mark Andreessen's, you know, famous statement that, you know, software is going to eat the world. Well, software has been eating the world and yeah. turns out now we have a whole bunch of it. So I don't know, let me, let me stop there. How can I help on this delineating between the MarTech and the sales tech side? of things. Well, I guess maybe I would be curious, does the delineation even matter? You know, I mean, Jeff and I were even kind of chit-chatting leading into this. It's like sales tech, martech, ops tech, fintech. Is it all just going to be like one like massive biz tech or something? I don't know. And it all is just one. Does it matter? Does, does the delineation matter? That's a great question. I think ultimately the answer is no. 
I think that's the right way to look at it from the sense of like, okay, you know, it's less about the siloed mentality, you know, of the past. And it is very much about like, how do we think about a digital business and how it operates overall? That being said, I think there is still specialization. Different people have different roles inside a company and they have different tasks that they're trying to accomplish. And there are different tools, you know, that are really meant to serve those professionals and to serve their needs. But I think what's interesting is even while you have specialization inside a company, when you step outside of the walls, you know, and you look at engaging with a business as a customer, as a prospect, you don't care about any of those <laughs> yeah. boundaries. You don't care about any of that specialization. And you take a much more holistic view of what that experience is like. And so I think that's what gets us into this really interesting place of like, on one hand, we want this set of specialized tools to give, you know, every professional, you know, the, the, the maximum impact that they can have with their talent. But at the same time, make sure that all this stuff integrates together and is connected together in a way that for the customer on the other side of this, you know, it's just one sort of smooth and continuous experience. You know, Scott, in the years that I've been reading your stuff, I, I have had so many takeaways. But one of the things that I've definitely taken away is that the technologies have been trending towards and enabling a closer one-to-one digital relationship. I kind of see that in the MarTech world, you know, where it was this one-to-many marketing automation just kind of keeps shifting out, you know, closer and closer to sales and then to service delivery, as you said, just one thing called customer experience. And to me, that insight was, wow, we're just moving our conversation to where our client is and these technologies enable us to have that conversation. And when I started thinking about it like that, after you're reading your stuff, it made it so much easier to sort through that MarTech landscape because, you know, I was like, I don't need all of it. I need the ones that enable me to have the conversation I want to have with the clients I want. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I feel like, you know, now that I'm starting to have some gray hairs here, I feel like pretty much ever since the internet, you know, hit commercialization, you know, in the mid nineties, like marketers have been talking about the dream of one-to-one marketing. And it was almost like the year of bubbles, like one of those things that like, ah, this will be the year. Well, all right, not this year. Maybe next year will be, ah, okay, maybe the next one. But eventually, one day it was, you know, the year of mobile. We never looked back. I kind of feel like, and, and just thinking through this, you know, live here with you, that the real one-to-one marketing experience has been achieved by the melding of MarTech and sales tech, because at the end of the day, it really is the sales organization and even post-sale, like, you know, the customer service, service delivery organization that actually has the one-to-one interactions, you know, with customers and to be able to provide that continuity from all of the capabilities we have, you know, in digital marketing, but to allow the focus of that to be directed, you know, by humans at the absolute edge of the organization of where we touch the customer, yeah, that's that actually is one-to-one marketing. And it's just being led by the sales organization. Hmm. So actually, you led us right into that that thing I wanted to, to pick you, your brain on. So, so you had this post, you know, you said sales tech is the new MarTech. Is that essentially what you're talking about? Yes. I think what's fascinating is, 
you know, so many things changed here through, um, you know, the past couple of years of the pandemic, you know, and one of them was this, yeah, just sort of like forceful shove, you know, that organizations uh, had of like, listen, we just, even places where we used to rely on, you know, face-to-face interactions, in-person interactions, trade shows or sales calls or field activity, like all that went away for a period of time. And the only option was to engage digitally. And my goodness, you know, kudos to, you know, the sales organizations and the CS organizations who adapted quite remarkably, you know, to that new environment. And actually, you know, now that we've got a couple of years behind us, we've seen the data come out, you know, in many ways, even as, you know, the world is opening up more and more, people are realizing like, wow, there were a lot of advantages of how we engage with people through these digital channels. And we're, we're going to keep that, you know, we might get back to more of a hybrid world where we get the best of both, but there's a lot that we enabled in this digital interaction, you know, through sales and CS that, yeah, was actually better than what came yeah. before. And so I think it's sales tech. Yeah. As soon as sales got into a mode where basically, okay, the digital channel is the primary channel where we're engaging with our prospects and customers. All of a sudden that opened up all this innovative opportunity for sales tech, uh, you know, software companies to say like, huh, all right. Well, if we're going to be doing this in this channel, here's all the ways we can start to make that a very magical experience, you know, for the buyer and for the seller. I'm going to do a quick shameless plug for you. So you published a white paper called MarTech 2030. And what you just talked about, if you go to, for listeners, if you go to page two, he did a really nice job of sort of synopsizing all the different data that's coming out from different organizations, describing that that rapid adaptation of the digital like buying and selling experience. And it's just a really nice chart that explains it really eloquently. So I I would highly recommend downloading that asset for many reasons beyond that, but that would be reason number one is it helps you kind of wrap your head around change buying behaviors and the fact that they're sticking and why. So anyway. Thank you for the plug. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. All right. So I took us off the rails again, Jeff. Sorry. So I, I think, you know, let's shift gears a little bit because in that white paper, you did such a nice job of laying out the five kind of trends you see for this decade. And I know Jeff, you were really interested in going down one of those in detail. So let's do that. I'd like to kind of jump into that from big data to big ops. Let's kind of go into that section of the ebook. We may come back to other parts of it because the whole thing is is really a, a wonderful piece of thought leadership. But let's start there because I think that's the one that, that Jeff, you found sort of like really, really powerful. I love the whole thing. <laughs> But I think the CMO in me gravitated towards the big data moving to big ops, because when I I look at this landscape, like I said before, all of this technology has to have a purpose. I love technology. I can geek out and I like analytics, but it's still, I'm on task to generate revenue and growth. And I've been in places where organizations have been incredibly distracted by the latest shiny object of of technology. And I try to think in terms of three objectives here. One is, does this technology facilitate a closer or deeper relationship with my client? And as we talked about just a moment ago, how can I reach out, build relationship? And that relationship can be qualitative or it could be quantitative and transactional, but it's relationship. The second thing is, and this is really important in in professional services, is productivity. 
the use of highly paid consultants time. I mean, we want them to be productive, but the same holds true for my marketing teams, right? I have limited resources and I, I want them focused on the highest value. And then third, those one and two are, are great, but if I'm not gleaning insights from all this interaction and I'm not learning so that I can innovate and improve those other things, what's the point? And to me, the big data to big ops is all about getting to the insights from these tools. Sure, the tools are great for productivity, but we want the insights. And that's really what allows you to differentiate. Yeah, it's a really fascinating moment in sort of how we're thinking about, you know, digital business, you know, the phrase digital transformation. I don't know, I feel like we're hearing it less and less, or at least within the circles I'm in, because I would say arguably we're probably on the other side of that for a lot. I mean, like, okay, yes, you know, we're, I mean, pretty much every major function, you know, in the business is now being like, you know, run by these digital systems. And that isn't to say that we've got the ideal digital business, but it is the case that our businesses are actually digital at this point. And I think that was the concept I was trying to get at with this from big data to big ops transition is we spent a decade, a decade and a half talking about big data. Like, oh my goodness, there's going to be all this data and how do we like capture it and store it and can we do analysis on this and you know and again now today i mean that was a huge challenge like 10 15 years ago like i mean yeah. even just figuring out where you put this stuff you know was a, a pretty hard challenge you know but today we again not that everything's solved but most companies now have a huge amount of data you know they've got systems in place you know for managing it and sort of the game has shifted from just yeah the the raw mechanics of having this data to the much more interesting challenges of like okay well what do we do with this data on top of it and so all throughout the organization you see the rise of all these ops specialties. You know, I mean, of course, we've had marketing ops for ages and sales ops, you know, and customer success ops. And now you see teams that are doing like revenue ops that connect the two, you know, and on the tech side, there's, of course, always been DevOps and, you know, IT ops and security ops. And now, oh, well, we've got data ops and machine learning ops and ML ops, <laughs> you know, and you start to like catalog these and you're like, my goodness, there's a bunch of these like ops specialties like popping up all over the business and the common DNA that they all seem to have is they're leveraging these digital tools to dynamically shape the process of how the business is actually running you know and so each one of them has this stack of oh these are the different apps we're using you know and we might have these algorithms or agents or ooh these automations that we're putting in place and again at one level that's like incredibly exciting on the other hand it's also something like whoa wait a second like this proliferation of all this digital ops activity happening throughout the business for most companies it's not particularly well coordinated at this point and we're starting to now run into the challenges of like, okay, well, what happens if, you know, we've got all these automations running over here, you know, in marketing, and then we have another set of automations that are running in sales, and there's another set of automations that are, you know, running, a, you know, an actual service delivery, you know, like, are these things connected? Do they have the same definitions of, you know, the data they're operating on? When one of them is changing, you know, some sort of like record for a customer, you know, does the other side of the ops uh, equation like, you know, detect that? And what does it do to it? I mean, these are a bunch of really interesting challenges. And just like 
big data didn't get solved in a year. I don't think we're going to solve big ops in a year either. But it's why I put it in that paper of saying, like, I think for this decade, this is going to be one of the major focus areas for companies is how do we get really good at bringing cohesion and orchestration to all of these ops functions across the business? This is probably not the question you're expecting. I'm curious, are you seeing these get rolled together? You know, you think about like, well, consultants, you know, hey, consultant opportunity folks, you know, organization design around this. Like, what are you seeing? I'm just curious. Yeah, I don't know that I'd use the phrase rolled together, but I would use the phrase coordinated. Okay. You know, like a great example of this would be, you know, in product-led growth. You know, I mean, you think about it, like that is actually the perfect example of a nexus you know, between something that's happening on the technical side for the development of our digital products, but now also our like marketing sales and CS organizations tend to be very attuned to the data and the activities that are happening through that process and orchestrating around it. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's so much innovation happening around product-led growth right now is like, oh my goodness, like the sorts of coordination you can do across these teams based on actual behaviors of customers using the product. I mean, this is a whole green field, you know, of opportunity. I think there's also another pattern. I've, I've been writing a bit about this over the past year is, you know, we often think about major software platforms as really being specialists in some vertical slice of the business. For instance, like, you know, the CRM, sort of like the main system for like, you know, marketing and sales, you know, the ERP for like finance and ops, you know, there's the HR platforms. And don't get me wrong. I mean, all these systems, yeah, I mean, are still very strong components, you know, like centers of gravity uh, within these teams. But what's been interesting to me is to also see like, almost like a different axis, like if, if that's the vertical axis, almost a, a horizontal axis of tools that really span all of those departments, you know, and the best example actually would be at the data layer with things like, uh, you know, cloud data warehouses, you know, Snowflake and Databricks and all this sort of stuff. It's like these become ways of providing cohesion for a common data layer across all departments. There are other tools that start to go higher up in the stack. You know, one of them is around all the stuff on workflow automation. You know, companies like for small businesses like Zapier, for larger businesses, uh, you know, solutions like Mercado that become these ways of like, okay, orchestrating these automations but doing it in a way that actually spans different departments and spans the like, you know, core technical stacks of those different departments, which starts to let you do these like really interesting things of like, okay, well, when this customer onboards, you know, yes, I want this thing happening in sales. I want this thing happening in marketing. I need this other thing in finance. I need this other thing like, you know, creating the right instance, you know, over in like the technical services side of things. And like, these are all very different stacks, you know, in those different vertical departments, but these like horizontal workflow automation tools let you now actually orchestrate across them. And I think, again, that's kind of an early example of saying like, huh, can we actually coordinate big ops? I think we can. That's cool. It is cool. And I'm just like, oh man, let me dive into that problem and try to, to figure it out. We had a great guest on a few months ago that is a channel partner and their primary channel partners are Salesforce and Anaplan. And they had a very niche market of specializing in companies with complex B2B sales process, particularly quoting highly customizable products. Think of airplane ticket pricing, for example, or even you know SaaS companies where 
you miss one item that is based on scale or volume or something, and you could be losing a lot of money. It was fascinating to me because the way they had to market was unique because of the buying committee. You know, they had the chief revenue officer who's doing the quoting and pricing. You have operations who's delivering on it. And then really at the top was finance, making sure they were managing the risk around the revenue. That was like the quintessential example of what you just described. And they're out there doing that across those platforms. Anaplan, Salesforce, and MuleSoft, and I can't remember some of the other ones that they were doing. But there's almost as many permutations as there are entities on your landscape. Yeah, well, I'll go further than that and say, actually, uh, yeah, the permutation side of it is what gets you into the, like, just mathematically, I mean, more permutations than atoms in the universe, you know. And so that's what, again, like, both makes this incredibly exciting. There's this thing in software called Conway's Law. And the idea is, like, the software you build is a reflection of the teams who build it, you know. So if you have, like, three different teams working on a compiler, you know, then you will end up with a compiler that is a three-stage compiler because that's just how people work, you know. (laughs) And it struck me that over the past couple of decades, you know, like this first wave of the software revolution, it was almost like an inverse Conway's law, which was to say basically, okay, whatever your company is and your business and the way you want to operate it, you're going to buy some software. And ultimately, you are going to have to change the way you run your business to fit the patterns of how the software works. No offense, you know, I mean, I've been in the software business for ages. There's some brilliant and there's some innovative software out there. But yeah, if you're having to like fit your business to the commercial off-the-shelf software, it's just really hard. And it actually limits the range of competitive differentiation, you know, that we can use in that environment. And what's been really, really exciting about this past decade, I mean, some of these things when people talk about no code and low code and all this more customization that's now available in software. And I think if you step back and you look writ large, like this idea of big ops and like coordinating workflows that happen across multiple different platforms, you know, if it's like Anaplan and Salesforce and MuleSoft and things like that, all of this is sort of like shifting the power back to us you know, as business leaders to be able to force the software to fit our model of how we want to run our business, how we want to deliver experiences to customers. And that's game changing. I mean, that is really wild because it now feels like the way in which we'll all be competing with each other in this digital environment just has a lot more, uh, what they call that, degrees of freedom in which we can execute. And so, yeah, that's, that's part of why, again, like if I think of big ops, you know, this is not a once and done thing, you know, in a year or two. This is like rethinking how we strategically orchestrate business for the next decade and beyond. It's rethinking the very organization, I think. Scott, how does that thinking impact what a company like HubSpot is doing around its ecosystem? Or does it? Does it enable more? Does it make you think differently about how to prioritize? How does it impact at a practical level? Yeah, I mean, this is arguably the single greatest motivation for HubSpot to invest in a platform ecosystem. Certainly, we have our own tools, and we increasingly have more and more customization and capabilities. I mean, people can use a no-code environment inside HubSpot for you know creating content, for like orchestrating you know workflows uh, you know within their CRM environment, things like that. But still, 
it's a big world out there. You know, no matter how many wonderful engineers HubSpot has, there's a finite set of software and features that we're going to be able to build. And there's arguably right infinite demand out there of what, you know, people could want to specialize, you know. And so really the only way to service, you know, that infinite set of possibilities is to really genuinely, truly open it up as an ecosystem and say, listen, any software, whether it's, you know, a commercial off-the-shelf package or something custom that's being built for a specific business, you know, there's an open way to share data back and forth. There's a layer at which you can then, you know, do like workflow orchestration, you know, across different tools. There's ways you can embed the UI in one or the other so that if someone is in their HubSpot CRM view, they can actually see a, you know, window into one of the other applications that's perhaps running somewhere else in the business. Then even at a layer above that, you know, I think there's a responsibility for platform companies like HubSpot to also help with the governance, you know, make sure that we can provide, you know, certification of the apps in these ecosystems, make sure that, you know, adherence to things like privacy regulations, GDPR, things like that. I mean, there's a bunch of that governance orchestration that people don't always love to talk about. It's not necessarily the sexy part uh, of MarTech, but you operationally have to get that stuff right or you end up in a world of hurt. And yeah, so I think the only way you like service this, you know, infinite landscape of possibilities is you've got to be an open platform. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Well, when it comes to HubSpot, I think one of the things that I really like about it as a platform is the user interface. To me, it's just hands down, so clean, so simple. It's a place that I don't mind playing in. Whereas with some of the other CRMs or marketing automation platforms, they're too crude in some respects. (laughs) They just don't provide a good user experience. So kudos to HubSpot on that front. And I think the integration, because I'm on on Gmail, I I think you guys have done a really good job with the integration with Gmail. Thank you for uh, the kind remark. I will definitely pass that on to the UX team who gets all the credit for that. But I think that's also one of the reasons why HubSpot definitely wants to be opinionated about these integrations. We don't want to prevent people, you know, from experimenting and, you know, innovating, you know, within the wide open world of ideas that people have. But when it comes particularly to how it intersects into the UI within the HubSpot platform, yeah, we do like to keep a fairly strong opinion uh, of that experience for the mutual benefit of everyone's customer here of like, yeah, I just want to be able to go in and understand what I'm actually seeing on the screen and have the consistency from one screen to another. I, I think you win when you make it look really easy behind the scenes, not so actually easy to uh, execute, but it's definitely one of the things as we continue to grow the ecosystem. I think I'm most excited about is how do we help more and more partners build things you know, that live, live within the context of HubSpot's UI, but do it in a way that enhances the UX experience 
and doesn't detract from it. So I have a question that's that's a little bit ancillary to this is when you look at the MarTech landscape, and I know you are in the, the process of reinventing the way that this is shared because it's become so big and, and almost overwhelming. And you can maybe talk on that as well. But do you, do you look across this landscape and do you see certain pockets that are hot? You know, in the last 24 months, like the parts of it where you're like, man, there's just a lot of like innovation and activity blowing up in this one corner. Or there's just that it's too complex to say that. I'm just curious what your take is. Yeah. So it's funny because I do get asked that question. I'm All the time. That question every year we've yeah. done the landscape, you know, and every given year, I, I have certain themes that I get particularly interested in. Yeah. But if I'm just looking at it objectively through the lens of where is their innovation? I kid you not, there's innovation happening in every single one of those categories. And like the best example I can give uh, of this is category around content management systems or web experience platforms, DXPs, pick your your language of the day. You can make the argument that that is the oldest category in the MarTech universe, right? In 1995, what was that first commercial CMS? Oh, I'm totally forgetting that. Anyways, right? So it's been 25, 27, 27 years, you know, of web content management systems. If ever a category should be like completely mature by now, locked down, like, yep, this is the way we do it. There's like two companies left. We're all set. It would be that. And yet the exact opposite has happened. Like, you know, the innovation that's been happening in the CMS space, the digital experience space over these past couple of years is like crazy. All the revolution that happened here with headless, you know, how we're rethinking stuff like we've gone now to like the jam stack of, you know, these like static sites, but everything on the front end is now being served through like dynamic APIs to all these serverless backend solutions and things, you know, magically can, you know, cross between what's happening in a web browser and what's happening over in a mobile app. And oh my goodness, the space is on fire in pretty much every single dimension of, you know, like, you know, new innovation, uh, investment happening to major companies. I mean, so like the oldest category on the landscape is still in this much of a revolution. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, I mean, EdTech was another one where we're like, okay, well, this has been around a while. This is, you know, we we can define this as mature. Nothing nothing new to see here, you know? And then like everyone's like, well, what would happen if we just got rid of third-party cookies? I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's rethink everything from first principles again. I don't know. It's one of the things that makes this field so much fun is continuing to evolve at an incredibly rapid rate. Yeah, it'd be hard to single out one category as being like, oh, this is the hot one. This is what's hot right now. Yeah. No, it's interesting, but I have it open right now and I'm looking at the CRM bucket and it just, it boggles my mind how much that that has grown. Because to your point, I always say, I think CRM is the technology that is most loved and most hated on the planet. Everybody hates it. Like no one really wants it or frustrated with it. I've never met a client ever in 20 years of being in an agency that said to me, boy, we love our CRM. It's the first conversation I have with every single client. And they always want another recommendation. Well, can you tell me something else? I'm like, no, my best advice is to just dial in on what you got and figure out how to make it really, really work for you. Unless there's significant problems that are like just untractable. But to your point, it's just there's, I don't know, I can't even count them. There's a thousand options in there. And how do you make yeah. sense of all that? I will say that HubSpot is working really hard to make yeah. a lovable CRM. Make that, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I, 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 was, I, was hard. But, but this is the, I, I understand the historic context that that comes from. So, yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point because I think people hate CRM because the expectation they have around it. They're not 
well, now this is just bias and arrogant, but they're not thinking. <laughs> to start a <laughs> they're not thinking in terms of those three categories I mentioned earlier. How can I use this to build a deeper, closer relationship? How can I gain insights from this to innovate? They really just kind of think in the very narrowest of fashion, how can this increase my productivity? And they don't even think of productivity in a broad range. They think of it just. I have to manage my pipeline or these opportunities. And that's the only way they think about it. And, and that's why they hate it. That's why they hate it. It's big brother technology, not, I don't know what the ancillary metaphor would be, but you know, it's not helping them be better. <laughs> it's interesting because you know, I was just having a chat with uh, the team at Workado about this too, because like automation is another one of those categories where most people, when they think about automation, they're basically thinking it through the lens of task efficiency. Like, okay, I had this task that I did manually. If I automate it, I can do it 10 times faster, 100 times faster. You know, and don't get me wrong, that's a perfectly fine use. But what's really fascinating, you know, with, uh, yeah, these platforms like Workado and Zapier and MuleSoft and all of that, is it isn't people using this to just like automate these individual tasks, you know, for higher efficiency. It's actually rethinking like, oh, okay, now that every piece of the business somehow has a digital connection to it, how do we start to orchestrate things Ooh, and change the way in which these yeah. things are orchestrated anytime, you know, we think we want to improve this process or we've got this like new opportunity that sort of like orchestration and innovation set of use cases is like an entirely different frontier for what automation can do and so i think that's yeah like a parallel with the crm yes we should probably be recording our interactions with customers but boy if that's the limit of what you're thinking like oh yeah this is a system of record of what those touch points were instead of like yeah this is our source in which you know we're like uncovering these insights this is our source where we're starting to have that you know like center of gravity around which all the orchestration for customer experience you know is being coordinated. I mean, that's where you get into all like the really fun stuff, you know, life after digital transformation. You know, going back to your MarTech 2030 study, I loved all five of those, but we've kind of been skirting around this, the, the first one in that report, and that's the no code. And I love the way you talk about no code and how it enables you know, what you could say marketing or sales, you could say big ops. I mean, it, it enables that. But I mean, when I saw you define Canva as a no code in there, I was like, that is so spot on because as a CMO, I'm always looking for ways to be faster. And Canva is definitely one of those ways to be faster when you're A-B testing and doing all that stuff that that marketing does, but the, the no code stuff of connecting things together, I think, and, and you had a quote in there that I absolutely loved. What was it? Software won't just assist marketers. Software will be the clay from which marketing is created. I absolutely love that because that's, well, thank you. That's, I mean, say, say more about that because I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of being in a digital environment is bits are infinitely malleable compared to obviously atoms in the real world. It's just until relatively recently, 
you needed a real specialist to be able to manipulate those bits for you, whether that specialist was like a graphic designer who was using Photoshop to like, you know, get everything there, or it was a software developer who was engineering how a web page was going to work, you know. And don't get me wrong, there's still like plenty of need in the world for the experts, you know, in all of these fields. But if you go down to the low-end use cases, and I'm sort of thinking of this in the context of like Clay Christensen's model of disruptive innovation, it's like you have all this like expert capability up at the top of the market, but then all these like low-end use cases that frankly are always underserved because they never quite rise to the level of being valuable enough to like hire the experts and get their valuable mm. time and solve it. But as a result, you know, people were just like, oh, yeah, well, I guess we just, you know, we have the website. We can't, we can't do a whole bunch of landing pages because who's going to hire a web developer, you know, to create a hundred variations of, you know, a web page, you know. But this whole thing about these no-code tools is they really help the general business user, the marketer, self-service now a whole bunch of those low-end use cases. And it turns out there's a huge number of them. Uh, I'm good friends with uh, David Robb, who, uh, you know, is the CDP Institute guy, the guy who like coined a customer data platform, CDP. And he and I have an ongoing debate about, you know, no code. And I, I think he's wouldn't object if I said he's a little more skeptical about it, you know. And I think like one of the things that he represents a number of people's skepticism about no code is like, oh, well, you know, like just because you can create the software, if you don't have all that experience of understanding how software should be orchestrated and, you know, flows and programmatic thinking, you know, and so like at one point he made this remark of like, well, you don't hear about, you know, citizen brain surgeons, you know, so like why, <laughs> citizen developers, you know, we don't have citizen brain surgeons. And my response to that would be like, well, that's true. But anytime you have a headache, do you have to like go out and like make an appointment? Well, yeah, the brain surgeon will see you for that headache in you know, six months. Like, no. Versus like being able to go to the corner, you know, like drugstore and be like, you know, I'll get some <laughs> Advil or some Tylenol, you know? And I think that's really where no code shines is it's like, it's our local drugstore. It's our walk-in clinic. It's the way for like, okay, all the things that aren't going to require a surgeon specialist, but we kind of really want to get this stuff fixed and solved, uh, you know, in our business. These no-code tools really empower people to do that. And that's, that's pretty revolutionary. I think what's really cool about that section, and, I, and I'm going to point this out to listeners, is that you actually go through the evolution of it and you actually use design tools as the starting point. So presentation design tools, literally PowerPoint. And my point in sharing that is I think is that notion of what no-code is is much broader than building software, number one. And number two, that headache is expanding. So today it's, you know, a headache, but tomorrow it's something, you know, more complex than that. And I think that's what's actually really interesting and thought provoking about that section of this thought leadership piece is it, I think every managing partner, every business leader, every marketing leader needs to be thinking about how this is evolving and what things they're doing now that they're doing in a, in a very specialist expert way, both servicing customers and in, the, in their, their the marketing of their business and what things you know are emerging that could enable to replace that. And then we can move up market, if you will, to other high-end use cases. So there's a lot of really just good thinking in there about about the importance of that. 
full disclosure, I'm in your camp on this one. So <laughs> I totally agree with you because I, I think it's really interesting. And what I love, and again, I'll say it again. What I love about this piece and that part of it is that I think the no code label has been thought of as software development. And I, and I think it's not, I think it's broader than that. And that's what is really powerful in that piece is explaining that in, in sort of layman's terms to people that may not have picked up on that prior. So in that movie, uh, Rat Tattooie, uh, you know, about the rat that, yeah. uh, you know, the world class chef, you know, the, the, the book in there by the great chef of like, yeah. anyone can cook. And I kind of feel like, yeah, this is, this is the magical thing of uh, no code is you're right. It's not just about anyone can create apps, although actually not yeah. like there's examples like if you can use a spreadsheet you can create an app because there's things that let you type in a spreadsheet hit a button and it turns it into a mobile app how wild is that but yeah it's really about any of these things that you're cooking digitally whether it's some sort of you know visual experience whether it's some sort of workflow i mean even things like you know again like landing pages and website content We've probably just grown so used to taking that for granted. We don't even think about that as yeah. no code anymore. But having been a child of like the first generation of the web, you know, there was a time yeah. when you actually had to like sit down with HTML <laughs> to like, yeah, get anything, anything. on the web, yes. you know. So yes. it's infiltrated a lot of just now what we take for granted and how we work as digital professionals. You know, we need to wrap. Yes. But I, I just want to say, I, I feel like we've come full circle. In that, you know, we asked the question, what's what's the difference between sales tech and, and MarTech? And gosh, you might even throw in tech in, in general is we're getting to a point where there really is no difference. Given the five trends in the MarTech 2030 report that you wrote, that tech exists to a large degree right now, and people aren't thinking this way, to take care of the headache that you have. And there are a lot of headaches in sales and professional services firms that if people would think differently about CRM and sales tech and open it up a little, they would be a lot happier. And I think their firms would be growing a lot faster if they were to take some of Scott's thinking and apply it to their business. Well, thank you. <laughs> Hope it's helpful. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you joining us. This was great. It was a pleasure. Thanks for all of your insights around MarTech. Thanks for all of your insights around big data, big ops, you know, both today and certainly over the last 20 years or more. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me as a guest. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.